is from Revelation chapter five, be reading through the whole chapter, Revelation chapter five. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back sealed with seven seals and I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice who is worthy to open the scroll and to break its seals. And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain and by your blood you have ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. Let's look to God once again in prayer. You may be seated. Father, as we open your word this morning, give us insight. Open our eyes, open our minds, open our hearts to receive. And in receiving, Father, may we put into practice that which we hear, not being forgetful, as those who look into a mirror and then turn and immediately forget what we have seen, but as those who are obedient and faithful by your grace, in your strength, and under the guidance of your Holy Spirit, keeping covenant and walking with you in Jesus' name, amen. So one of the interpretive principles that we need to grasp as we go forward in the book of Revelation is the reality that in the narratives of prophetic scripture, there's not necessarily a chronology in the way that those unfold. This is true really for all of scripture. There are pieces of the gospels, which if you've read through Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, you've maybe noticed that, well, Matthew tells this story here and John tells it there. It's because they're not writing narrative history or biography in the way that we might typically think of that. They have 
an agenda, they have a message. They are writing the gospel of the kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And so they present the events of Jesus' life in the best way to highlight that message and to get it out to the people. In Old Testament history as well, there are bits of Genesis that we're not persuaded were necessarily told to us in a chronological fashion, but were told to us because God was making a point about Abraham and about his faith and about the way that he would live out his faith in the life that God gave to him. So we need to get away from the sense that we are reading history in the way that we are used to reading history. That is not to deny the historicity of scripture. I believe firmly that when God writes history, it is history, it is truth, it is the word of God and I will stand by that. I'm just saying that the narrative structure of these books is not always what we might think. We number chapters and verses. Those numbers are not in the original manuscripts in either Hebrew or Greek, but we do it to help be able to find scriptures when we are studying them, when somebody is up front preaching and they say, look at Revelation chapter five, verse one. It's helpful. But in our way of thinking very often, because two follows one and 12 follows five, we have this idea that Revelation two must come after Revelation one and Revelation 12 must come after Revelation five. That is not true. We saw this at Christmas, the Sunday immediately before Christmas, when we looked at Revelation chapter 12 and found there the unfolding of the entire scriptural story from the book of Genesis right up to our own times. We saw that woman crying out in childbirth and that took us back to Genesis 3 where God had made a promise to Eve and through Eve to all of the women in that godly line that through her offspring he would bruise the head of the serpent. Revelation 12 spoke of a child to whom that, that woman in the vision of Revelation 12 gave birth. Now it's not the son of Eve per se, because that child is the one who would be caught up to God and to his throne and who would rule all nations with a rod of iron. Hopefully that image sounds a little bit familiar after our call to worship this morning. We know that the offspring spoken of in Revelation 12 is Jesus, the Christ, and that that great red dragon is the old serpent, the devil who has been busy from the beginning, deceiving Adam and Eve and seeking whom he may devour to this very day. Revelation 12 is the big story that began in the early chapters of the book of Genesis and continues down to this day. And even though it's chapter 12, it does not come after this vision of Christ. In Revelation chapter five, it does not come after the vision of Christ among the lampstands in Revelation chapter one. So we have to keep that clear. We're, we're moving through a series of visions and when John says, after this I saw, the after this is not to say that what he says next comes after what he said before. It's to say, I saw this, and then after that, I saw something else, or maybe even 
as in the case of Revelation chapter four and chapter five, I saw much the same thing, but from a slightly different perspective. The text that we considered over the last couple of weeks brought us before the throne of God himself. It brought us into the holy of holies, behind the veil, where we saw with John a vision of the living God, the ancient of days, as he is known by the prophet Daniel. And we saw God seated on his throne, surrounded by the cherubim, and worshipped incessantly as They cried out in Isaiah, and as they continue to cry out in Revelation 4, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty. Remember Revelation 4, verses 9 to 11, and whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, and that whenever refers back to what was described as day and night, they never cease. So day and night, in unceasing chorus of praise, whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders, that is the church of Jesus Christ, represented in this vision by those 24 elders. Whenever the angels cry out in praise, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, the church falls down to worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne saying, worthy are you, our Lord and our God. That's the whole nature of worship. We covered that pretty extensively this summer, but it's worth a mention here. To ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Worship is never about us. We are not the audience. It ought not be tailored to our tastes and likes and dislikes. That's not the point. God is the audience in worship. And the church just falls down and says, Worthy, worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Well, that worship has been going on since the beginning of time, and it will carry on forever. Our God is worthy of that much praise. None less. But in Revelation chapter 5, it's as if John had been standing in one spot witnessing all of this, and then maybe he grew restless and he just took a step to the side. He's much the same thing but he also catches a glimpse of something that he had not noticed before. Revelation chapter five, verse one. Then I saw in his hand, hit the right button, it works better. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne, a scroll written within and on the back sealed with seven seals. Now remember, this is not chronological either in terms of the structure of Revelation or in terms of John's own life. You can think of this. We know John's been caught up from the earth. He was in the spirit on the Lord's day on the Isle of Patmos, and he was taken in spirit to this place where he has this vision. We know that in spirit, he's in a different location from where his body is, but in a way here, he's not only traveling to a different location, he's traveling to a different time. 
And this scroll written within and on the back as it's described should take us back to another time. In fact, to Exodus 32, verse five. Um, that is not the verse. Ignore that other verse from Exodus. Moses turned in, in, in the verse I wanted from Exodus. Moses turned and went down from the mountain with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand and catch the description because it's so different from the way we often think. He went down the mountain with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, tablets that were written on both sides, on the front and on the back, they were written. So we've come to picture the, the typical portrayal of the Ten Commandments, right, with the two arches, one, one tablet. And on one side, you have the first five commandments, or depending on what denomination you're from, the first four. And on the other side, you have the next five or six. But that's not what's described in the book of Exodus. Moses had two tablets. There's really no reason to think that they were round at the top. That's a portrayal of Renaissance artists. He had two tablets of stone, and written on those tablets on front and the back was the law of God. There's not even really just, I, I don't think that it's necessarily true that these are just the Ten Commandments. Could be the whole book of the covenant inscribed on these. And the reason there's two is because in the ancient Near East, when a king made a treaty with a foreign people, there were two copies of that treaty. One would be taken back to, say, Babylon. When Nebuchadnezzar came and he conquered Israel, he enforced a treaty with them, and he said, these are my terms, you'll meet these terms, or I will come back here and I will put my boot on your throat yet again. And he took one copy of that back to Babylon and he put it in the house of his God. Another copy was left in Jerusalem as a reminder to the kings and the priests what they were required to do. So Moses brings the treaty of the great king, the treaty of God himself, down the mountain, and there's two copies, both of which would be kept in the Ark of the Covenant. Ark, box of the covenant, the tablets that Moses is carrying. And in this case, because God dwells with his people in the midst of his people, both copies will be in the house of their God. So when Revelation talks about this scroll written within and on the back, this is a, a natural for us to go back to the old covenant and understand we are talking in some sense about the book of the covenant. There's good reason to believe that in Revelation chapter 5, John is being taken back in time to a time before the resurrection and the ascension of Christ, an event that John had witnessed with his own eyes, but he's going back to a time when the scroll of God's covenant remained sealed because no one had ever been able to keep it. And that would, of course, explain what follows. The lamb, or in the right hand of the one who sits on the throne, is this scroll written within and on the backside. It is sealed with seven seals, a mighty angel proclaims with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? 
And when no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it, John writes in verse four, and I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it because no one from the time of Adam's fall on down through history had ever been worthy. No one had ever kept the terms of God's covenants with his people and so been found worthy to open the scroll and to bring redemption to the people of God. So for John, this vision has become something of a nightmare because in his real life, he was personally witness to the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus, and he knew that redemption had been accomplished by the Lamb of God who took away the sin of the world, words that he had heard spoken by John the Baptist on the day when he first met Jesus. So in this vision, the idea that somehow the terms of the covenant remain to be fulfilled causes John distress, and he begins to weep loudly at the very thought, contemplating the idea that maybe the redemption of God's people has not yet somehow been accomplished and applied, he begins to cry. And in verse five he wrote, then one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Now we don't have a lot of time to deal with this this morning, but at least note that the two titles given for Jesus here are related to his humanity, to his human nature. He is, according to his human birth, the lion of the tribe of Judah. He is the root of David, the offspring of David, speaking to his right to be king over the people of God, and it's important because when we're talking in terms of the covenant, we have to remember God has always kept the terms of his covenants. God keeps his promises. He always has and he always will. So where those covenants have been broken, it's, it's our side. It's the human side of those covenants where, where people have failed. The first Adam, the perfect man in the perfect environment, having all of the advantage of a face-to-face -face relationship with God, broke faith. He broke the covenant that had been made with him, disobeying God and throwing away the dominion, throwing away the kingdom which had been assigned to him in that covenant. Just a quick word on that. The word covenant is not used in the first couple of chapters of Genesis, but the structure of a covenant is. God creates the man and he says to him, and, and these are commandments, by the way, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, have dominion, Anybody who ever told you there was just one commandment in the Garden of Eden, just one, and that was all Adam had to do. They, they haven't actually read the text very carefully. There were a whole bunch. He was to be fruitful and multiply, probably something that he wanted to do anyway. He was to fill the earth. He was to have dominion over all of the creatures. He was to rule over creation as a steward under God. He was given a kingdom and he threw it away for a piece of fruit. 
just as sin came into the world, Paul says in Romans chapter five, through one man and death through sin and so death spread to all men because all sinned. So the part of the covenant that's been broken is the human part, it's our part. And the mediator we require, and this is right out of the Heidelberg Catechism, must then be truly human because God's justice demands that human nature, which has sinned, must pay for its own sin. In other words, it's the human side of the covenant that's been broken, it's the human, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, the second man and the last Adam, as Paul describes him in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, who must pay, and he has. The elder in Revelation 5 said, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Now, there's another important interpretive principle we have to pick up here. We started with one, not everything that we read should be understood to be chronological. We have to let the context determine that for us. Here's another one that we have to carry forward. In verse five, John heard something. The elder said to John, Weep no more, behold the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David has conquered, so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. The elder said, which means John heard. But in verse six of Revelation chapter five, and between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. Now, that's remarkable itself. When viewing a slain lamb, we might have expected something a little different, something more along the lines of a corpse lying on the floor, not a lamb standing as though it had been slain. But still, before we even go to that, it's important to notice the pattern. I heard and I saw. Because as you're reading through the book of Revelation, this is a tool you can use to help explain. Remember, start with what you know. Well, how do we know some of the things that we know? Because John will say, I heard and I saw, or sometimes I saw and I heard. And when he sets those two things together, they explain each other, they describe each other. So in this case, what he heard, the lion of the tribe of Judah, is what he saw. It is the lamb standing as if slain. When we start with what we know, not only from the book of Revelation, but from the Gospel of John, we know that the Lamb of God is in fact Jesus Christ. And therefore the Lion of the tribe of Judah is as well. We also know from this twofold description, Jesus is both Savior and King. Jesus is Savior and Lord. He cannot in fact be one and not the other. Contrary to how it is sometimes portrayed, we do not come to know him first as Savior and then decide somewhere down the line whether or not we will let him be our Lord, as if he is the Lamb of God who takes away our sin, but in having done so, he became King of kings and Lord of lords. Whether you like it or acknowledge it or let him, it doesn't matter, he simply is. And I know I keep coming back to Philippians chapter two, but this is so important. Though he was in the form of God, 
the Son, Jesus, did not count equality with God as a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant. Therefore, because he emptied himself, because he humbled himself, because he went all the way to the cross for us and our salvation, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow. We will see that in our text this morning from Revelation 5. Jesus Christ is Savior and Lord. He is lion and lamb. And remember, that's the point of the book. This is the revelation of Jesus Christ. The point of this book is for us to see and to understand who Jesus is today. There's an old prayer from a long, long time ago that started off, gentle Jesus, meek and mild, no. He is King of Kings and Lord of Lords, and you better approach him that way. This is the revelation of Jesus Christ. This is why the book exists, and our text this morning will take us there, verses 6 and 7. And between the throne and the four living creatures, and among the elders I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and seven eyes, So not only is this lamb not just a furry corpse lying there on the ground, nor is it a body forever represented as nailed to a cross. It is neither of those. This lamb has seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and he took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. This lamb is standing as if slain because this lamb is Jesus Christ, who said in chapter one, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. I was dead, and behold, I am alive forever. And so the lamb standing as if slain, as though it had been slain, goes and he takes the scroll. But notice he has seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. Thus, having established the humanity of Jesus, John now presents us with his deity. In prophecy, horns, and we'll run into this over and over again, horns speak of power and authority. And in our text, seven horns speak of complete or perfect power and authority. In fact, the power and authority of the Godhead. Remember Matthew 28? We come back there a lot too. Jesus said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. As in Daniel chapter 7, where the prophet said, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him, to this one like a son of man, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. Remember that all peoples, nations, and languages thing? It will come up again. And his dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. 
Jesus Christ is the lamb with the seven horns then precisely because he is the lamb of God. He is in fact God. But he also has seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And of course, we've seen this a couple of times already in the book of Revelation. In chapter 1, the seven lampstands among which Jesus walked. And in chapter 4, we saw the seven blazing torches that were set before the throne of God in the Holy of Holies. But here the Holy Spirit is associated not only with the Father or with God in some general sense, he is associated with the Son. The Nicene Creed, which we use occasionally, speaks of the Holy Spirit proceeding from the Father and the Son, and it is true, he does. The eyes of the Lamb are the seven spirits of God sent forth into all the world. So Jesus is the line of the tribe of Judah, but he also the lamb with seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God. He is son of man, but he is also son of God. He is fully human as he needed to be to keep the covenant, but he is also fully God so that he could keep it not only for himself, but for us so that by the power of his divinity, as it says in the Heidelberg, he might bear the weight of God's anger in his humanity and earn for us and restore to us righteousness and life. That's what Jesus is doing here. And that's why when the lamb takes the scroll from the hand of the one who is seated on the throne, when the son of God, having been found worthy, takes the scroll of the covenant from the hand of the father, John saw the four living creatures and the 24 elders fall down before him. Each one of them is holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. We have to mention this. We'll come back to it later in the book. But in Revelation, that incense altar that sits before the throne of God is the place where your prayers are offered as an offering of sweet-smelling savor before the Lord of the universe. And we'll see later that those prayers will be mixed with coals from the altar and they will be cast down on the earth and things will happen. Your prayers make a difference. And these elders and these living creatures hold these bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints, and they sang a new song. Now remember, these are the creatures, the living creatures of Revelation chapter 4, the cherubim of Ezekiel, the seraphim of Isaiah. These are those creatures that when Isaiah first encountered them in chapter 6, were singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. In Revelation chapter 4, they're singing the same song, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and who is and who is to come. And whenever they sing that song, the 24 elders who represent us, they represent the church. Whenever the living creatures sing, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and they worship him who lives forever and ever, saying, worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power. That was chapter four. In this different perspective in chapter five, they sing a new song. The elders and the living creatures join together 
the cherubim and the seraphim around the throne join with the church and they sing, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain. And by your blood, you have ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign on the earth. Please note the reason for their praise, the reason for our praise. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. So as the old hymn writer put it, it's not one that's ever been in our Psalter. What can wash away my sin? What can wash away your sin? Nothing. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. And again, I don't want to dwell on this too long this morning, but I do want to say it. As certainly and as forcefully as I possibly can, because there are places in the church at large where this doctrine has fallen out of favor and is being spoken against. There are so-called, and I say that very deliberately, so-called theologians who question the substitutionary atonement of the Lord Jesus Christ as if we could be saved by anything else. I heard a sermon last year that said, our sins are washed away by the tears of Jesus. No, they are not. He has purchased us for himself by his blood. There was an overture made from Classis Ileana to Synod last June that will come back this June, asking our Synod, the Synod of the Christian Reformed Church, to declare that it is a grievous deviation from sound doctrine, a heresy, to in any way deny that Jesus Christ's life, death, and resurrection provide a substitutionary work of bearing God's wrath on our behalf because of the just punishment we deserve for our sin. What makes me sad is that that overture had to be written because there are people who are denying that. And in denying it, they deny the scriptures, and in denying it, they deny our confession. They deny the stance of the Church of Jesus Christ. Forget about the denomination from 2,000 years ago to this day. This is biblical, and it is extremely important. Knowing, Peter says, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. This is non-negotiable. And far from being a reason for embarrassment, it is a reason in Revelation chapter 5 for highest praise. Far from us holding this doctrine close in our hearts, but not talking about it very much because it's kind of silly to think that Jesus shed his blood to pay for my sin. 
far from that. This is reason for us to fall down with the cherubim and the seraphim and to cry out, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. That's how and why you are saved. That's how and why I am saved. And furthermore, we praise because you, Jesus, have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on earth. In other words, you saved them, and you have restored to your people the kingdom, the dominion that the first Adam gave up so cheaply in the Garden of Eden. See, Jesus is Savior, and Jesus is Lord. As both Savior and Lord, he is worthy to take this scroll, to take the book of God's covenant and to open its seals. As a man, he kept God's covenant perfectly, and as God, he kept it for us. Worthy indeed. Now watch what happens next. When the living creatures, the cherubim and seraphim and the elders, have finished their song, worthy is the Lamb. We were worthy because you were slain and you live and you have redeemed people for God and you have made them a kingdom and priests. When the elders and the, the cherubim have finished that song, John writes, then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, I guess, what would millions and millions and myriads and myriads of angels sound like? We go to a convention and sit in a hall with a few thousand people singing praise to God, and it's like, oh, wow. Imagine this. Myriads upon myriads of angels singing around the throne, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Get the picture here. For incredibly powerful, in fact, probably the most awesomely powerful creatures in the universe, aside from the Trinity himself, have spent their part of all of eternity just worshiping the living God, saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty. And then in the fullness of time, because Jesus has redeemed us by his blood, the church joins in that song. And the song has changed, but not really. They just sing, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. And then the whole company of angels Myriads of myriads, ten thousands of ten thousands, an innumerable company of millions picks up that refrain from the church and the cherubim and sings, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wisdom, blessing, strength, honor, glory, praise. If you think of this in terms of a symphony, it's like a symphony that was begun by a string quartet beginning a theme. Holy, holy. Holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, and then it's picked up by the orchestra. Worthy, worthy, worthy are you. 
Worthy is the lamb who was slain. And then as the power and the majesty of that music crescendos and gets louder and louder and louder, the full choir comes in and says, Worthy is the lamb who was slain. And just when you think this can't possibly get any more majestic, as the whole company of saints and angels cry out, Worthy, John hears a still louder counterpoint. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. See, this is the point of the book. It's the point of revelation. Not so that you can look at the headlines and get all scared and think, oh, I wonder if that's what revelation, that seems... Don't know what's going to happen. Not at all. But so that you can look at Jesus Christ, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world, standing in the midst of the throne. And so that you can look at the Father and you can look at God's awesome and mighty power spread throughout all of creation and you can fall down and cry, worthy. The point of this book is to reveal Jesus, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the lamb standing as though slain in the midst, literally, in the midst of the throne, having prevailed so as to break the seals and open the scroll. And when you see him so revealed, what are you to do? What are we to do? We are to worship. We are to join the chorus of the cherubim we are to lead the whole hosts of saints and angels gathered around the throne. I don't know if you caught it. When John was crying because he didn't think anybody was worthy to open the book, who told him, don't weep, weep no more? It was one of the elders from those 24 thrones. John takes on a role of someone who wonders if redemption has been accomplished and applied and the church preaches to John who later would call himself the elder and says, don't weep, it's done. And we come back here, the 24 elders, the church joins with the cherubim and begins this song, this symphony. And it's as we worship, as we praise God, the angels join in and the whole universe joins in and declares worthy. To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever. We were created to worship. This is the mission of the church. Everything else that we do, evangelism, fellowship, discipleship, all of those things that we do, they are not ends in themselves. They are means to this end that in all of life, in everything we do, in everything we say, in everything we think, we would worship the living God and the Lamb who is in the midst of the throne. This is a revelation of Jesus Christ, and this is the mission of the church.